the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. The racket you hear in the back is Tom bouncing around because he's excited because we're going to do a plant pathology podcast this morning. Tom, And I've been calm thinking down. for a few days that really the hard part is, is you shouldn't ever have a critical mass of plant pathologists anywhere just in case a meteor comes crashing into the building or a bus or something else because there's so few of us at this point. You certainly don't want to knock two of us out at one time. We've never had more than one plant pathologist in the podcast studio at once. No, you can you can keep wondering, but yeah, we I, I, thankfully he noticed my eyes looking around, so there wasn't a really long awkward pause because that's exactly what I was thinking about. I no, there hasn't. Uh, uh-uh, uh, I've been it. Why don't you introduce our guest? So we have today with us Dr. Trey Price from the LSU Ag Center. Trey, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have another plant pathologist here. Yeah, it, but I'm happy to be the first one. It gets tough to carry the load. You're familiar with that, though, so, you know, yeah. that's like rehashing old territory. Trey drove up this morning. You're from Winsboro. Is that uh, right? I am. I'm an extension and research pathologist based out of the Macon Ridge Research Station there with the LSU Ag Center, uh, working in eight crops, everything except cane and sweet potatoes. Eight? Eight. Can you list them all? Uh, corn, cotton, grain sorghum, oats, peanut, rice, soybean, wheat. Is that eight? I don't know. Was that eight, Tom? I didn't count, but I think it is because the only one that you have that I don't pretty much <laughs> dabble in is oats. And, re- <laughs> and really, I just, there are not a lot of oats in this state, although some years you run across a lot more than others. Yeah, you'll catch a, you'll catch an oat peel every yeah. once in a while. It won't be very big, but it'll. Mostly in the Delta, if somebody's growing it, they're growing oats because they have horses. That's right. And their wife needs the oats to feed the horses. Yeah. You yeah. get outside the Delta proper, and there are a few places where you pick them up every now and again, but they're pretty rare. Yeah, we work, we work with Steve Harrison, a wheat and oat breeder there at LSU um, extensively. He's got thousands of plots at, at Macon Ridge so that's how I got into oats yeah he's always had a strong program he taught us plant breeding way back when pretty intense plant breeding class I only walk oats to look for the oat crown rust and relay that information and that's usually the okay, only time we'll, I look we'll at get we'll get to the plant <laughs> pathology just I, I know I think. settle sorry settle. <laughs> trying to contain myself over here Trey you said where you work but Where'd you come from? I'm from Winsboro. I was born and raised in Winsboro, Louisiana. I, I didn't grow up on a farm, uh, but my first job was working at Johnson's Gin and Feed Mill in Chase, Louisiana when I was 14. At least that's my first job on the books anyway. did mowed yards and rake, raked leaves before that and whatever else. After that, I got into uh, cotton scouting because back then it was nothing but nothing but cotton in, in northeast Louisiana. I worked for John Stapp a consultant there in northeast part of the state for seven seasons and then started in mechanical engineering at Louisiana Tech and got to calculus and decided that I wanted to be a consultant. So yeah, that's a showstopper, isn't it? It is. That, that stopped me right in my tracks. <laughs> uh, ended up getting a bachelor's in agronomy from Louisiana Tech, and I took plant pathology in 1998 under uh, Dr. Lynn Walker there in Ruston. That rolled into a job in his lab, and then that rolled into a, an assistantship for a master's degree under him. And then after that, I went to work for 10 years, and uh, I started with the Ag Center in 03 as an extension associate. I uh, had five bosses at the time working in weed science, agronomy, pathology, entomology, so, you know, fertility, all that stuff. So 
Uh, that was tough having five bosses, but I ended up with Ro- in Roger Leonard's program in entomology, and then uh, for five years, then I ended up with Dr. Boyd Paget, and I started my uh, PhD in '08 and finished it in 2013. I got and was fortunate enough to 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 roll into Dr. Paget's old position there at Macon Ridge. When you were at Louisiana Tech, there's a bunch of guys that came out of that agronomy program that have done a lot of stuff. Y'all, had, that was a solid program. I don't know if it's still if they still offer that or not. But back then, you know, guys about our age, there was a lot of folks that seemed like came through that program. Yeah, it was. And it, it's not as strong as it used to be, but we still get – I mean, I had an intern from, from Louisiana Tech last year in my program, and she's going to – I think she might end up uh, working on a master's degree at LSU. So we still kind of recruit from that program. But uh, Dr. Winstead, Charles Winstead, pretty much taught uh, most of the agronomy courses – at that time, and he was a jam-up good teacher and, and really learned a lot coming up through that program. So when you worked for Rogers Leonard, did you follow Don Cook? Was that – did I you was, take over for Cook's position? Uh, no, he he worked over at St. Joseph with Gene Burris, and he was in Rogers' program too. He left – I guess, I'm not, I can't remember what year he left, but I, I was there a couple of years that he was there. I knew after Don got out of school, mm-hmm. I knew he stayed and, and worked for the Ag Center for a few years before he moved up to Verona with us. Mm-hmm. Yep. Tom, right. I had to get all my talking in because I know once I <coughs> yeah, fire the starting pistol on the plant pathology <laughs> that I'm just going to be sitting over here. Twiddling your thumbs? I'll be texting people on my phone. Crossing your eyes? Well, don't do that just in case we need your expertise in some respect or another. It could happen. Could happen. Definitely could happen. You've done enough plant pathology yourself, too. I've dabbled. Did some work with Don Growth when you were at Crowley. Yeah. Trey, before we start, why are manhole covers round? (laughs) Because they're made that way, I guess. Tom, any insight from a plant pathology mind? No. It's probably the cheapest way to make them. It's probably easier to get them out of the manhole if they're round than it would be if they're square. Yeah, I don't know. Spur of the moment response. (laughs) I don't have answers to these questions. I just ask them. Well, shouldn't you kind of have an answer to lead the conversation? Well, the answer you hear to that question sometimes is the manhole covers around because the manhole's around. Trey drove up this morning on Tom's invitation to talk about corn diseases. Obviously, corn in Louisiana is going to be a little bit ahead of where we are. And driving around, I've done quite a bit of driving around this week, and there's some corn that's motoring. So we're getting on towards plant pathology season. I'm just going to sit back and listen and let y'all talk about things to look for, things to account for as we move into that part of the growing season. Well, and I definitely know that Trey will probably have a little bit more insight on some different disease concerns that they encounter in Louisiana a little bit more than what we do in Mississippi. Trey, why don't you start us off? You, you were really, and I wouldn't use the word culprit, you were the person that published the first report of curvularia leaf spot in North America, if I'm not mistaken. And that, that really caught some folks' attention at that time. And that certainly is a disease that has been on the increase and definitely catches consultants' eyes once we start getting to the point where tassels emerge and all the rest of that. So would, do you have any thoughts about that when it comes to scouting and or uh, what to look for? First off, I would say that we really don't know if that particular foliar disease causes yield loss in our area. Uh, We know that it's a tropical disease in other parts of the world that can cause significant losses, but 
Uh, I'm not sure that the environment can get bad enough to cause yield losses, but there are differences in hybrid susceptibilities with that particular organism, it seems, based on your ratings and, and some of my old ratings. Fungicides work on Curvularia. As far as scouting for it, it looks like iSpot. Whenever I first saw Curvularia, it looked just like iSpot. And that's, you know, actually I went back and found some old notes from, I think it was 2014, where I you know, looked at the raw data and I actually wrote iSpot on the top of the page because that's what I assumed what it was because I'd never seen it and that's what it looks most similar to, but it's definitely not iSpot down here. I don't even think we have the iSpot pathogen in the Mid-South. You'll start seeing it in, in susceptible hybrids, Curvularia, during the mid-season, right around Tassel. And the worst field I've seen even was last year. I can't remember the hybrid offhand, but I'm still not sure that they incurred yield losses at that point because the crop was so far along, it probably outran that, that disease severity, if I had to guess. Well, and your, your mention of it looking like iSpot, that's certainly something that I try to key in on for through diagnostic telephone calls and when people send photographs is that those diagnostic pocket guides that everybody hands out most of those are original they are they originate in the upper midwest so a lot of the photos that are in there and a lot of the disease information tends to focus on issues that occur in the upper midwest and iSpot is one of the ones that they deal with because it's a little bit cooler and they have a tremendous amount of more continuous corn production in their system which tends to allow that organism to overwinter. For this season, we actually found a hybrid that seems to only get curvularia leaf spot. And I base that on multiple locations that you rated last year in Mississippi. I mean, we can look and see if that, since we have a hybrid that's only going to get uh, curvularia leaf spot out there, we might be able to put in some disease loss studies this season just to see. We tried to put a test in, or I shouldn't say we tried. We did put a test in that, that ended up getting a little bit larger than what I wanted it to. And we picked six hybrids that had different curvularia reactions based on looking at hybrid trials last year in Mississippi. We're going to look at four fungicide applications that will include a non-treated in there and three different products and then four timings. So like I said, it got a little large. It's somewhere, somewhere a little south of 400 plots to begin with which is going to make things a little difficult, but I think it should provide some good information and at least allow us to get an idea as to do we really see a yield reduction associated with that particular disease because I think that's the biggest question right now. Yeah, when people, I get calls from farmers and consultants and if, if they've got a few spots on their leaves, you know, some people have this mindset that corn's supposed to look perfect the entire season and, um, you know, this this time of the year, it a lot of these fields do look perfect coming up, uh, but once you once that canopy laps, you're going to start seeing some uh, a number of diseases occurring on the lower leaves, and that's generally where most things start. You know, when I get those questions from growers about curvularia, my mindset right now is is it's generally a minor concern. It's not a major concern of mine in, in in corn production. I think I've looked at our hybrid trial locations in Mississippi the last three years, if I'm not mistaken, and I know I, know I have two pretty good years of data from all those locations and what I tried to do is even score hybrids based on well this one had an eight for curvularia is there a yield difference between something that tended to have an eight versus something that had a two and I realize that number doesn't tell the listeners a lot but a two would be so zero would be no disease nine would be a tremendous amount of disease most of the leaves covered with that particular disease so an eight would be something a little bit visually less than that 
And if you try to rank those based on the yield that the hybrid trial coordinator cuts at the end of the season, those hybrids that tended to score an eight still had really good yield. So there really wasn't anything that would guide you to believe that there was a tremendous amount of yield reduction associated with curvularia. And I think that's, that's where we struggle as plant pathologists is we know it's there. We know there are hybrid differences. We know you get a response from a fungicide, but should you make a fungicide suggestion or suggest that somebody makes a fungicide application to manage just that one disease? Right now, my answer to that question would be no. The, the bigger concerns in, in, in my neck of the woods are northern corn leaf blight, um, number one, and southern rust, number two. Yeah, and, and, I and would I, I would echo definitely on the southern rust, but I think there's there tends to be a little bit of a difference in the environment that you all encounter than what we encounter through most of Mississippi because I don't see that we have a tremendous amount of northern corn leaf blight. In some years, we don't seem to have as much as what you all get through central and northeast Louisiana. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of corn in northeast Louisiana, and there's and there's a, a significant number of farmers that only farm corn year after year. When you have corn following corn year after year uh, with northern corn leaf blight, you got people doing minimum tillage. The pathogen basically seems to become ubiquitous. We are uh, working on that the, our USDA modeling project last year. Every sample of debris that we sent in was positive for the northern corn leaf blight pathogen. So that pathogen's there, and if you have that susceptible hybrid, and if you have frequent rains beginning in May and, and, and moving on through June, you're going to need a treat for it. Well, and the hard part about that is you take tillage out of the system and reduce that natural breakdown that you get with turning any of that soil over the top of residue that allows that organism to survive for extended periods of time, especially if you have what could be considered mid-southern mild winters. I don't feel like we have much continuous corn. I mean, there's some you can find, and there may be some that's a couple years. I know I was in a rice field one year, and this was several years ago, and it was behind like three straight years of corn. And we were there for the barnyard grass, imagine that. It was pretty severe, but that's the the one time I can think in my memory where I stood in a field that had a history of continuous corn. I feel like most of ours is rotated, Tom. Most of it is. There are a few places that you'll catch some extended lack of rotation in some of those systems, but it's pretty rare. There, there tends to be one large area in the eastern delta, and then there's a few places you get down around Port Gibson. There are some farmers that that have some pretty continuous regular corn production, and it just fits in their system a little bit easier. And I, I felt like a tourist in one of those fields last year. I mean, it was every disease under the sun that you could <laughs> consider overwintering on residue. It was just a jaw dropper. And ankle-deep residue is just not what you need in our environment. Well, in the disease pyramid, Yes. You knew it was coming. In the disease pyramid, what's the environment that, for northern corn leaf blight, what's the environment that it likes? I mean, we've got the the inoculum there, you know, either in Trey's case with continuous corn and straw residue, you know, there on the, on the soil, or in our case, coming from wherever it comes from, what's the environment that it likes? Frequent rainfall. Rainfall drives that disease epidemics. So Louisiana is what you're saying. Yeah, frequent frequent rainfall events doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be two inch gully washers, but I almost said another euphemism there, but <laughs> I'll leave that one out. But you know, just the frequency of rainfall events really drives that that disease. 
Well, and anything that allows that quote unquote the good scientific plant pathology terminology of free moisture. Oh yeah. So you keep those leaves moist over an extended period of time and with dew and the temperature differences between day and night and that does drive a good bit of the production of that inoculum and then landing on leaves and actually producing lesions is certainly where it goes in my mind. The year I moved to Louisiana, 100 years ago now, but it rained some, you know, not significant, was some days, 19 days in a row we got some rain, and that was in June. If that happens in June in corn in the, in, in, in the Mid-South, you're going to have some issues with foliar diseases for sure. Well, and something like northern corn leaf blight doesn't like high temperatures. Right. And I think that's really the one distinguishing line that you can draw between some of these organisms and some of these specific diseases. Northern corn leaf blight doesn't like anything over about 92 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take. And that's just a ballpark number in my head. So when you're getting into 100 degree days and the hard part about that, and I'm sure this will shock the other two inhabitants of, of the podcast studio today, but I spend a tremendous amount of time driving up and down the road thinking about that because there's a difference between air temperature above the crop canopy and temperature within the crop canopy. No doubt. I've walked through many a cornfield, and it's strange how sometimes you'll just come across this cool spot. I'm sure you, both of you have experienced like that. Like hit the cool spot in the lake? Yeah, yeah just like that. Right, but I certainly wouldn't sit here and say that there's much of a cool spot in a 13-foot-tall cornfield in the middle of <laughs> July or whenever you get there. That's not a cool but, environment. Hey, Re- Tom, relatively speaking. Guess what I don't think about driving down the highway? You probably don't think about those types of things? I'm usually thinking about what we're going to eat for lunch. I, I understand. <laughs> I do a lot of that, too. There are two main rust diseases of corn in our production system. Common rust, as you can infer from the name, common You see it just about everywhere. It's not necessarily a major concern. And then the 800-pound gorilla in the room that everybody's always concerned about, which would be southern rust. With that in mind, do you have any thoughts or comments about common rust, Trey? Wait. First, tell us why that is the 800-pound gorilla. Southern rust being the 800-pound gorilla because depending upon when you have the initial observance of that particular disease, it can be a... 800-pound gorilla. A big yield reducer (laughs) and a huge concern from a standpoint of when do we make fungicide applications? Should we make a fungicide application? Or the usual question, is all the corn going to fall over because it got southern rust? Is it like on the level of blast and rice? It's beyond the level of blast and rice. Oh, dear. Some years it can be. And, And in the this will mark my 14th year at Mississippi State University, which some days is really hard to wrap my mind around. In those years, I remember one year out of that 14 to this point where we have run across southern rust in June. Typically, I mark the 4th of July on the calendar, and that's about the time you can expect to start finding the initial observance of southern rust somewhere south of I-20 in Mississippi is pretty regular, pretty frequent observance of that particular disease. Trey, back to you. I hijacked that, but the differences between the southern and common rust was the question that Tom asked. The common rust pustules are going to be a little more brick red. Um, They're going to be on both sides of the leaves, you know, upper and lower surfaces. In my experience and in in talking with with Dr. Boyd Padgett and Dr. Clayton Ollier and uh, both good, great pathologists in Louisiana, um, 
in their all of their years of experience i'm not sure what kind of combined experience they have but they don't know of anybody that's ever sprayed for common rust in louisiana because usually the weather gets too hot and that that uh that pathogen really doesn't like super hot high temperatures so and you know we'll be there before long i'm sure we'll probably get to 100 100 degrees at some point here in may so yeah people you know i get thing first thing out of the gate in corn every season is hulk a spot or paraquat drift they both they look identical hulk a spot's a bacterial disease and it's it's nothing you can really do about either one of them Uh, it's just distinguishing you know, if you've got a drift event, you need to identify whether or not it was drift. So you can do that by patterns. Hoka spot shows up after thunderstorms. After that comes common rust. I'll start getting pictures from everybody and calls from everybody asking, you know, what is, is this common rust? And I'm like, more than likely, you know, we can look at a sample under the microscope and double check if you want. But based on the time of the year, you can, you can distinguish whether or not it's common or, or, or southern. And southern rust actually looks different than common rust. And it's the, the pustules are a little more yellow oranges color typically you'll only have pustules on the upper surfaces of the leaves and like tom said it, his experience has been somewhere around the first of july is when we first pick it up the past two two seasons it's been a little sooner than that uh, if memory serves last year we picked it up during the first week of june and that was in um, central southern part of louisiana more typically middle of june to first of july is when we start seeing southern rust there's your 800 pound gorilla in the room is southern rust unless you have anything to add on common rust no i I think the common rust concern is driven more so by the last few years i think we've just had some hybrids either we've had hybrids in our system that have been a little bit more susceptible to that particular disease or we've ended up with a environmental component that has meant we've had common rust a little deeper into the season than what we have the last decade uh, and again, that's just a, a general comment for, for sake of argument there as to why we see more of it or why we have a little bit more concern of it. And I think we, we do a better job scouting corn in general. So I think when something shows up, someone is, is convinced that could be a, a problem. The hard part about common rust is it'll look different deeper in the canopy. So when you start first observing it on lower leaves, it may look like southern rust. And the hard part about that is about the only way to confirm that you have either common or southern rust is to run it on a microscope and actually compare spores and shapes and sizes and all the rest of that. And that can be a little cumbersome because not everybody drives around with a microscope in the back seat. So you really have to get somebody nailed down to do that. Actually, nobody drives around with a microscope in the back seat. No, I, I don't even drive around with one in the back seat. I, I thought d- about it, actually. I have some years too. I've had one in the truck, but I stopped carrying it because it just got in the way of all the other junk. With that said, I think the listeners should know that Southern Roast is the one that most plant pathologists have focused on in this country. There's a huge mapping exercise that we go through every year. Easiest way to think about that or to find that map if you want to see where things are occurring in this country is to Google iPipe Southern Rust map. And I think that will come up as one of the first two or three hits. All of the plant pathologists in this country are plugged into that. And we all tend to include that information then on just the county level. So counties will be colored red as compared to counties that are either white or green, depending upon whether or not they've been scouted, quote unquote, or they've been scouted and nothing has been observed with regards to the specifics as they relate to Southern Rust. I think they have that platform through agpestmonitor.org now. You can get their 
going through that website too. Yeah, that's right. My general thoughts on Southern rust and as far as a risk in Louisiana, I mean, the risk is there if Southern rust shows up early enough during the season. If you find Southern rust in uh, what, especially in vegetative stages, but uh, early reproductive stages, fungicide applications warranted, particularly if the weather is going to be light, you know, light rain, light wind, uh, frequent rainfall events with a lot of these fungal uh, diseases. It can it can be very explosive underneath the, uh, you know under the right environmental conditions, but most of the time, I think uh, corn in Louisiana serves as a sentinel plot for the rest of the nation in a lot of years because most of the time in Louisiana it shows up so late the corn crop's going to outrun it and um, it's not a you know it's not a major concern um, so that that's most of the time. Uh, in Louisiana, not to say it, it can't be explosive, but um, it just depends on the year and it depends on the weather. Well, we should say that southern rust is kind of the one caveat when it comes to the temperature issue. Curvularia and northern corn leaf blight don't like those high temperatures. Clayton Olio always tried to impress upon me that when he did his PhD work, he was still seeing sporulation and production of new pustules well into 105 plus degrees Fahrenheit in corn. Yep which definitely speaks more to the comment about being explosive in nature. That particular organism and disease does like high temperature. High temperatures and high humidity, it just keeps, kind of keeps going. And, and the and rainfall, the one, of course. You can do a really good job making corn look pretty when it comes to some specific fungicide applications to manage southern rust, but that doesn't always necessarily translate to a yield response. So you may not get a benefit from that application in every instance. And I think that's really the, the, the crux of the message when it comes to managing southern rust is that can be a difficult thing to really economically pencil out. There's a lot of factors involved. When did disease initiate? You know, what's the long-range weather forecast? What are the commodity prices doing? You know, what's your, what's your past experience? I mean, what, what, what experience have you had with it in the past? Economics is always a bottom line, though. You know, you have your cost of your fungicide, cost of application. And we could get into a whole conversation about fungicide applications in corn and, and coverage. It seems like in the, in the northern states, there's more people putting fungicides out by ground, and they're getting a, a lot more bang for their buck than an airplane. And I've heard Tom in, in, in talk saying you've got an airplane going 140 miles an hour over the top of a corn canopy, and you have to deliver that product 13 feet down in the canopy in some hybrids. It's hard to put the fungicide where it needs to be. So you end up just protecting the top and, you know, minimum 5 GPA by air. But with southern rust, it's, you know, the good, the good news is, is we've got fungicides that are effective on both northern corn leaf blight and southern rust. Um, and relatively inexpensive compared to some other products. So there's a corn fungicide efficacy table available at the what that's, that's on the Crop Protection Network that's now. Right. Some of us tailor tailor the fungicide efficacy table to our states. I've done that for years. Just I took out the the diseases that occur in the north and uh, just worried about the ones that were that uh, we're worried about in the south. It's kind of tricky. And the other thing is, it came along several years ago. Is I'm not sure when is the uh, the southern rust management and the stalk integrity. If you get southern rust in your cornfield, it does not mean your corn's going to hit the ground. But now maybe if southern rust eats every leaf off that plant, you could have some stalk cannibalization and have some lodging issues. But a lot of the a lot of the issues with lodging are mostly related to the hybrid. Some hybrids lodge, 
and that's just the bottom line. I walk OVTs or OHTs, whatever you want to call them, every year. And you can be walking along, and all of a sudden there's two rows that are flat on the ground, while the other plots next to it are, are, are fine. So the lodging issue is, is I think, more related to, to the particular hybrids and genetics in those hybrids. I would completely agree with that. Trey, we certainly appreciate you making the trip up to visit and take time to record with us this morning. For those of you listening, we certainly appreciate the support that we get. Hope you enjoy the podcast and the content that we're putting out. And if we can do anything for you, by all means, just give us a call. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.